Welcome to the Humanity Matters Podcast, where we discuss and reflect on faith and philosophy, nonprofit leadership, and social issues. We want to engage ideas on what it means to be a free human being in the pursuit of human flourishing. For more information, visit our website, philipfletcher.org. And now, the Humanity Matters Podcast. Uh, welcome to the Humanity Matters one-on-one episode. I am your host, Philip Fletcher, and today we're going to have joining us uh, Larry Sharp. So it's going to be a great time to uh, engage with this veteran entrepreneur, former libertarian candidate for uh, the governor of New York. And uh, before we get started, as always, connect with me on social media, whether that's on Twitter or on YouTube. Uh, Facebook, or on the World Wide Web. It would be awesome to connect with you. And so now uh, we're going to bring on Larry Sharp. Larry, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you for having me aboard. I appreciate it. Yes. Thank you very much for uh, joining with me today on this Humanity Matters one-on-one discussion. This is an opportunity to have a conversation, uh, get to know who you are, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is uh, I'm here in Conway, Arkansas, and, you know, just want to expose individuals, especially uh, individuals who are not familiar with libertarianism, uh, individuals. You guys got Ricky Harrington over there, yes, though. Yes, we That's... do. We oh. do, but we still got work to do. We still got I work love to that do. man, though, but he's great. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I uh, spent a lot of time with Ricky and um, and the work that he's doing and looking forward to see what he's what movement he's going to make as he runs for uh, governor uh, here in Arkansas. He shook, he, sh- he kind of shook up the world when he uh, mm-hmm. ran Tom Cotton uh, two years ago. So I'm hoping to see what he can do. Guy with a great heart and a uh, great mind and very compassionate and thoughtful. So um, Mr. Sharp. So yeah. tell us about yourself. Like tell us about yourself and your family. That's is that is that exciting? I'll try. Let me uh, see yeah, if I yeah, can. yeah, I think I don't is. know. I'm gonna give it a shot. I'm gonna see if okay. I'm I'm gonna try to tell it like a story, so maybe it'll be exciting. Everybody be like, oh my god, it's like the Batman story or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See if we can do that. So um both my parents got left me up for adoption. My um and I was adopted when I was a baby, and I was adopted in the 60s. And the funny thing about in the 60s, um, you had to be adopted. You had to be adopted by a same race um, couple, and this was in New York. Okay. And you would think that the progressive New York, we would not be doing that, but we, in New York was the same thing. So I was very lucky. My my biological father was black, and he was in the Navy. My biological mother was white and was from Europe. I didn't know where. Okay. Uh, I at the, at the time I didn't know where. So, um, but I got adopted by a uh, a, a mixed couple again. Uh, father was in the army. Met my mother. Uh, in Germany, she's German, okay. brought her over here, and then adopted me. Okay. So I was adopted by them. Um, two years, and they get divorced. Okay. So he leaves. I don't see him again. And um, my mother meets another man. He was in the he was uh, he was actually in the Air Force. Another veteran, veterans all over the place, right? He was in the Air Force. He was in the Air Force. Military already. Yes. So she 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 meets him, and he raises me. And I, I call him my father. He's the man who I call my father. He's the man who told me how to be a man. But he died when I was he died when I was twelve. Oh wow! So he dies when I'm twelve. 
I'm a lost young kid. Don't know what to do. Grew up in the Bronx, South Bronx. Got us out to Long Island before he died. He was in law enforcement. He was a subway cop. And then he was a uh, corrections officer at Rikers Island. Okay. My mom was a waitress. Neither was educated. And um, so I'm lost. So I decide I'm going to go join the military. That's what I'm going to go do. Right. That's what I'm going to go do. So I rush off to join the army like my father. Right. My father, who I thought was my, 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 my parents lied to me. They didn't tell me I was adopted. Okay. So I thought the gentleman who was in the army who had met my mom over in Germany who had, who had, who adopted me, I thought they were my biological parents. Okay. They lied to me the whole time. Oh, wow. So I was going to be like him, right? Yeah. I yeah. found out I was adopted when I was in my 30s. That's life-changing. Yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So wow. I'll do a, a quick side note. I always thought that I was half German. Okay. So I felt connected to German. I speak a little bit of German. Okay. I felt connected to that part, that, that part of my heritage. Um, and of course, I'm black. I kind to that part of my heritage also, but that's what I thought I was. I thought I was half black, half German. That's what I was thought I was, right? Yes. Um, but then I find that I'm adopted. I'm like, so am I really half German or not? Yeah. So I do like a 23andMe. I do like an ancestry. I do a bunch of these different um, ancestry pieces. Okay. And guess what? I'm German. Just randomly. Really? Okay. I happen to be. Yes. Okay. Just I happen to. So I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not psychologically genetically broken. I'm fine. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. So, yes. But I actually happen to be German anyway. Just interesting side note. But anyway, um, so I go to join the Army. So when I go into the join the Army, there's, there's four different, um, all four different um, of the services in the same room, the mm-hmm. same, same building. Yeah. So I go into the Army guy, and he's like, yeah, Larry, it's going to be great. We're going we're gonna to make you a general in a week. You know, you're going to be traveling the world. You're going to be meeting hot women. Yeah, uh, you're going to be, you know, oh, it's going to be amazing. You're going to get you're going to be a PhD in a month. It's going to be awesome, right? Tells me all these stories. I'm like, gosh, this is great. I've got the Army all the paraphernalia, right? I got the, the bumper stickers and the book covers. I'm still in high school at the time. I'm 17 years old. Okay. Still in high school. So I'm walking out like, yeah, I'm going to tell my mom. I'm going to go join the Army, blah, blah. Outside waiting for me is a Marine Corps recruiter. Marine Corps recruiter is standing with his arms folded over. Looks at me. He says, hey, son, got a minute? I said, yeah, because I'm, I'm a tough guy. I'm smarter than this guy, right? Okay. He can't get me. I'm right. smarter than him. Right. He can't get me. So brings me in, sits me down. He says, an army guy promised you a lot, didn't he? I said, yeah, I'm going to be a general in a month, whatever. I told him all the stuff he's going to promise me, right? Marine Corps guy said, that sounds great. He says, you know what we call that in the Marine Corps? I said, what? He said, we call that the solar plan. Everything under the sun. Okay. I said, wow, great. He goes, you know what I'm going to promise you? I said, what? He said, four hard years. Are you ready? I said, yes. And I signed up. Wow. That's what, what, a, Marine Corps. what a sales pitch. Yes, <laughs> that was his sales pitch. Yes, but I guess he knew what I was looking for, right? Okay. And as I look back then, then I didn't know, obviously. I was, I was just a, an ignorant 17-year-old kid. I didn't know then. But as I look back now as an adult, I was desperately searching for mm. positive male role models. Yes, sir. And he gave me that, mm-hmm. right? He gave me positive male role model to say, son, prove yourself to me. And I was like, I want to do that. Yes. Oh my God. I want to do that. I'm 17. Yeah. I want to do that. So it really, that's how I joined the Marine Corps. So I joined the Marine Corps for seven years total. I was there for two tours. And while I was there, my mother collapsed. She could not handle my father being gone, me being gone. I'm only child. It just did not work at all for her. And she uh, got first addicted to, to regular prescription drugs. 
then eventually uh, illegal drugs, and she became um, a, an addict, and then eventually a uh, convicted felon. Okay. So I pulled her out of out of, uh, out of jail, um, and started to rebuild her life. So I took some money I'd saved in the Marine Corps. I, I helped her out. I, I got her set up for everything I could get her set up for. Got her a, a car. And she struggled to find work. And anyone who has a has a record knows it is not easy to find work. No, it's not. And she and she's not educated. Not educated. An immigrant. Convicted convicted felon. Yeah. Wow. System yeah. not set up for her. You're right. So I got tired of my mom whenever she found a job being a hostage. And she was. She was a hostage at work. She was uh, afraid to tell anybody. She lied on every form. Every form mm-hmm. she lied on. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if she put down felon, they don't hire her. Right. She'd rather lie and hope they don't check. Right. And she'd always be worried that they would do a check, background check eventually, come back and go, sorry, you're fired because you lied. Yeah. So I got so tired of her being a being a, a hostage. I said, you know what? I'm going to start a business. Okay. And I started a business that anyone could have. Trucking business. Can you drive? Yeah. You got a driver's license? Yep. And I started a trucking business. We started a trucking business, and it was me and her, and she had uh, uh, remarried. So I had a stepfather at the time. So we all started a business together. And I said, we started a business together, but my mom owned 100% of the business. I own nothing. I did that because if my mom's the boss, no one can ever fire her. Uh, and she is no longer a hostage. Nice. So my mom was no longer a hostage. And we ran that business. Well, I ran it for about – I helped her run it for about two years. Okay. I was just basically the sales guy. I was just making, helping to make some, some sales. I did some driving. I did whatever it took just to get the business off the ground. Uh-huh. Got off the ground. I left because I didn't want to do that. I was for her, not for me. Yeah. So I left, and my mom ran that business uh, until she retired, and then she moved to South Carolina, and she passed away there. But um, So that's how, that's how I, I, I got into entrepreneurship, by doing that, just break, trying to break the system that didn't work, that wasn't supporting the average person trying to have a second chance at life. Our, our country is not good at second chances. Right. Yeah. It's supposed to be a whole lot better. And right. it's not at all. Right. So so I had to go out of the way and it made me decide to go into entrepreneurship. And that's what I did that. Then I went out at several jobs. I had many jobs. Um, I was a teacher for a while. I was a sales rep for a while. And then I realized I got to start a business. This business is a good idea. So I started my own business. Okay. That one failed. Um, I sold that business off after two years. Okay. The first year of the business is, is what I call my MBA. Because that's when I learned how to run a real business. Yeah. I, I knew how to sell. That I could already do. But I didn't know everything else required to run a business. How do you do with insurance? How do you deal with bookkeeping? Mm-hmm. How do you set your pricing right? How, you know, all these things I had to do. So I learned really in those, in those two years. And by the second year of the business, it was successful. The first year was a disaster. I was just bleeding money. It was terrible. Yeah. By the time I'd come to my second year, I started making some money. But I'd already lost so much that I was still in the negative, right? But someone bought it. Because they saw that it was now profitable. They yes. didn't have all the bad blood that I had. They didn't lose all the money that I lost before. For them, it was just gravy. So they actually bought the business. And they didn't have all the money that I wanted for them to purchase the business. So I was so tired and so angry. And if anyone listening or watching has been an entrepreneur, sometimes when you're doing that kind of work, yeah. it gets to you to a point where you just don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And I just didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to get up in the morning and do it anymore. So I said, I'll tell you what, we'll break it into six. Pay me one-sixth every month for six months, and we're good. Mm-hmm. He said, great. I did that deal. I'm not, I'm not advocating this. I'm just telling you what I did. I did that deal on a handshake. Did you That's, really? That's yes. That is, yeah. That is. And, yeah. But it wasn't – you know what it was? People think it's tr- it wasn't trust. Okay. Because I just didn't want to do it anymore. Okay. It was desperation. 
Okay. I I wish it was trust. It wasn't. It was so, desperation. I feel you. That that was, I just wanted out. That experience you had was greater than the the possibility of of not getting that money. I understand. That's correct. I understand. And the funny part is, he paid me every single cent once a month for six months. But that's because the business was profitable. He was making money, so he didn't care, right? right? So he was he, so he paid me every month for six months, and I went back home. Um, I licked my wounds for a while, um, and then I started this business I have now, which is the Neo Sage. I started that business in 2004. That one rock was rock and rolling. Okay. I was very lucky. Very early on, I got into um, fi- high finance, which is great. I mean, it's a lot of money. And for those of you who are running around the the world in 2005, 2006, 2007, they were throwing money around. Oh, my gosh. Right before the crash. Mm-hmm. Before the crash is always the best time. Everybody's partying yeah. right before the crash. Yeah. And they were throwing money everywhere. And I was collecting. I was happy. I was like, oh, you give. Okay. Oh, yeah. Give me some money. So I was doing very well. Partially because of my skill set. But partially because the timing was just so good, they were throwing money at me. The problem is I was too ignorant to understand that that party was going to end really fast. Yeah. So I was making good money. I had my own office on Third Avenue. I had a couple employees. I had a, I had a, a training facility in my office. All okay. good. I'm training. I'm coaching. I'm, I'm teaching. Life is good. Yeah. And then the crash came. Right. And when the crash came, I was devastated. I was devastated for two reasons. One, because I was in a terrible environment to deal with that. Two, I didn't want to accept that it was that bad. I was so optimistic. I was like, this can't last more than a couple of months. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Massive debt. I got to shut my business down, fire my employees. Everything is crashed around behind me. It's terrible. By 2010, that's when it actually finally collapsed for me. Mm-hmm. Right? Most people got hit late 2008, early 2009. Right. I started getting hit early 2009. By 2010, I was finished. There was no right. way I could stand anymore. I was done. So all that's going away. My wife is a baby. Our second daughter. Okay. She's our second daughter, and she has to go in the hospital, and she almost dies. She has to have heart surgery at 18 days old. Oh. My wife is a mess, as any mom would be. She right. packs up and moves into the hospital, leaves me alone with my then six-year-old daughter. So now all of a sudden, I'm a, I'm a single dad all of a sudden, out of nowhere, yeah. Yeah. and I'm not, the major, I'm not the major caregiver, and all of a sudden, I'm a single dad. My business is completely a disaster and in shambles collapsing all around me. My daughter's about to die. My wife has left me, basically. Not for the marriage, but for my other daughter. daughter. Right. She literally moved into the hospital. Like, she left the house and moved to the hospital. Yeah. And at the same time, that's when my mom got uh, got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And that was when she was going to die. Terminal. All at the same time. Worst time in my life ever. I thought the world was ending. I thought the world was just, that's it. The world's ending. I've lost the game. Pack yeah. it up. Yeah. It's over, right? There's no way I could control all this stuff. And I was in probably my worst, I was in my worst emotional death spiral ever, with, without question. It was a terrible time in my life. Okay. Worst year of my life was 2010. I thought the worst year of my life was the year my father died. And that was back when I was a kid. I was 12 when he passed. That right. was devastating for me, right. as it would be for anybody. Right. But this actually surpassed that. That's how horrible it was. And I contemplated suicide. That is how bad it was. I was contemplating suicide. It was just, okay. I, I thought there was no way I could get around it. So eventually, I, I just took hold of something. And it's going to sound crazy what I took hold of. What I took hold of was my diet. Okay. I know. It sounds crazy. No, but- it, it, you know, it doesn't because um, the fact that you said it's you, you know, you had a convergence of all these very difficult, you know, personal life experiences, yep. you know, professional experiences, you know, a person 
can feel as if, you know, you know, what's the point of uh, living anymore? What's my purpose? So on and so forth to contemplate what you were contemplating. But then that opportunity to say, hey, I can fix my eyes on something. Yep. Um, And absolutely find some meaning, you know, that that that's huge. And it being a diet is huge. Yeah. It happened because I started saying to myself, well, what, what was also happening in my life at that point is I don't drink. I'm not, I don't use substances. It's not my thing. Right. So I started eating all my emotions. So okay. I'm literally having a pizza every day. I'm ordering pizza almost every day, a full pizza uh-huh. and a two liter of Coke for lunch. And because I'm isolating myself, most of my friends are professional friends. I don't want them to know how bad things are because I need their help to grow again. Mm-hmm. And my wife is gone and my mom is, is dying. Yeah. So I have no support structure at this point, right? That most mm-hmm. people would go to the support structure. And yeah. I have no one around me to go, dude, you can't do that. That's not healthy. You can't eat that for lunch. That's yeah. not good. You got to do something. You got to pull yourself out of it. Yeah. I was in denial, so mm-hmm. I couldn't see it. But I got so big, I must have put on 20 pounds, 25 pounds. Okay. So I, I got to put my suits back on to try to go back to meet people again. Mm-hmm. And I can't fit in my suits. Okay. Physically, I can't fit. I'm like... I do something. So I decided I wanted the simplest, hardest thing I could possibly pick. And I picked no carb, low carb. Okay. That's what I picked. I'm like, that's the one because just don't eat carbs. Right. It's simple, but hard. If that makes any sense. Right. 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 But it's simple. Just don't eat carbs. Yeah. Carb. No. So I became a fanatic for about two months. And I mean, fanatic. I was eating like meat, eggs, coffee, water. That's it. Yeah. For like two months. It was crazy. But while that's probably not the best for your health, it was really good for my mental health. Uh-huh. Because controlling that made me feel like I'm disciplined. Mm-hmm. I can do this. Mm-hmm. I can take charge of something. I lost 40 pounds in two months. Wow. Just fell off me. Yeah. But I was, again, I was a fanatic. And yeah. I just, I needed that to feel like I control something. Yeah. And when I control that, I then began to control every other aspect of my life. And I got my relationship with my wife back. I yeah. dealt with my mom. I fixed my business. And I got everything back up and running. So I came back from that. But I think the biggest chunk of that was getting well, getting hold of something as, as what people would think of as trivial, which is your diet. But mm-hmm. it wasn't trivial for me. It right. was big for me. It was huge right. for me. Right. And that got me up and running again. So I got back up and running. I started doing more leadership courses. Okay. I changed my business model around. I went back to teaching again. And it's not okay. become successful again. So I, I got myself out of that horrible death spiral. Mm-hmm. While I got myself out of that death spiral, I was less and less enchanted with politics. Okay. My entire political life, I was, I, I was raised in New York City basically as a Democrat because my parents are Democrats. Mm-hmm. I thought that's, I, are we Democrats? I guess we are. Yeah. I didn't really care. But when I joined the Marine Corps, I joined the Marine Corps in the 80s. My okay. first commander in chief was Ronald Reagan. Yeah. So I was much more conservative as a Marine as, and Marines also, most people don't know this are the most conservative of all the branches. Right. Right. right? So, so I think as a, I grew up kind of like, I guess thinking I'm a Democrat, I never joined a party, but I guess I thought I was, uh-huh. but as a Marine, I kind of thought I was a Republican because I thought I was under Reagan. So yeah. maybe I was Republican. Yeah. I never joined any party, but I, I, I so I was kind of against all of it. Uh-huh. But in the nineties, when I started to come kind of of age more of like caring more about politics, I thought they all sucked. So I was like, 
Ross Perot, he's going to save us, <laughs> right? I was that kind of guy, right? Yeah, then, uh, yeah. my dad introduced me to Ross Perot, too. Uh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Then I was like, Nader, he'll save us. Ralph yeah. Nader will save us, right? And then I just didn't care. And then I got, I believe the Obama stuff. Like, I fell for Obama. Uh-huh. I thought 2008, I thought, okay, that's it. This guy's different. Finally, a different guy who could actually make change. You know, he's like Nader and Perot, but he's with a major party, so he can make some change. Right. I believe that I was in. And then I saw, well, that didn't work. So I, that okay. By 2010, I was like, it's over. It's done. I was like, he's like all the rest of them. Yeah, he's not gonna. He's not gonna do what he said. He was never. He was never different. It was another story they told us. Yeah. So I was done, and I was so disenchanted. I wasn't gonna vote anymore. Okay. I wasn't gonna vote anymore, and then, then I heard Gary Johnson speak in 2012. Okay. And the reason why Gary Johnson landed for me was because he was an entrepreneur talking about business, and so was I. It landed like I could. I could hear him. He was the messenger that I needed. Now, it's funny is when I first heard him, I thought he was kind of radical. Now I'm far more radical than he is. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm far more radical than he is now. Right. But but that's where my head was. Right. Like that's where I was. And this is why whenever I talk about the liberty movement, I like a very wide variety of messaging Mm -hmm. because I think people are in different places in their life who who are different things. Someone's going to hear, you know, someone someone's going to hear a. an ANCAP, somebody's going to hear a minarchist. Yeah. Somebody is 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 going to hear a Gary Johnson type. Somebody's yeah. going to hear, you know, a Ron Paul, right? Yeah. People are in different places where they're going to hear it. I don't care how they get here. I just want them to come here. Mm-hmm. Gary Johnson was my door in. And mm-hmm. then I was like, oh, this is, these librarians are great. Who are these guys? Oh, libertarians. Oh, they said librarians. I'm sorry. I got you. I know who, whatever. So I was in. So I joined the party. I supported him in 2012. I supported him in 2016. Um, and then I ran, I, I wanted to be his VP in 2016. I lost that um, internal election. And then I uh, ran for governor in 2018. I ran the longest libertarian campaign ever and raised over half a million dollars. Got the party ballot access in New York state for the first time ever across the entire state. And then the next year I crossed state again supporting the libertarians that I had hopefully, uh, you know, brought on board. Yeah. We got 103 victories in my state. We went from zero libertarians in New York state to 103 in, in one year. And then New York state said, you can't No, we don't like that. And took away our ballot access with a stroke of a pen. And we are no longer a party. There are now zero libertarians elected really? in New York state. Yes, correct. Cause legal. New York state. What? And they, they legally did that. Yep. Bye. You're all gone. Wow. So we're all gone. So now there's no libertarians in uh, there's there's officially no libertarians in New York State anymore because they wrote it out and said so. Was that a good enough story? Did I go too long? And no, that 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 is like a Batman type origin story. I'll tell you there that. There we go. It sounds there like a, it sounds like a good uh, movie, honestly. Um, a, a well, hopefully, because I'm writing a book on happiness. OK. And a lot of that. Those stories are in the book. The book, I hope, will come out in a couple of months. Okay. Supposed to come out in the summer, but it's got, I got completely overwhelmed and I couldn't finish it. Yeah. I'm hoping I can finish it uh, this fall. And it is about happiness. Okay. And because I believe that our movement is actually about happiness. Explain that. People in our movement make a, a big mistake. Okay. They make many of them, but here's one we make constantly. 
We're about liberty and freedom and liberty and freedom. Yeah. No, we're not. We're not. We're about happiness. How do you get to happiness? Liberty and freedom. Okay. The freedom to pursue happiness, right? That's what was actually in our divorce papers from the UK. Mm-hmm. We want to be free to pursue happiness. Yeah. That was that's what America was built on, and we forgot that, right? That's the point. Liberty and freedom are a means to an end. Yeah. Right? They're not the end. Because here's the most important piece that we often screw up. We say people want to be free. Not everybody does. Mm-hmm. Some people don't want to be free. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. You can voluntarily lock yourself into any contract, any agreement, any yeah. social club, any civic association. And then you want to do, you can follow anybody. You can go to cult if you want to on yeah. you. All good. Just don't force your views on others. Let us be free. Yeah. That's a critical piece. That's yeah, why I, think, I say we're about happiness. Yeah. I think that's that last piece you brought up about uh, there, there are people out, people around the world um, who, don't want to be free correct and want other people to experience that non-freedom um and i know personally it it validates theirs that's the remember that because when you when a person doesn't want to be free if other people are free it will sometimes make them feel less than Uh so because of that if they don't want to be free if you also aren't free it validates them Mm -hmm. and all i'm saying is we should validate them it's okay if you don't want to be free. We love you anyway. Right. It's okay if you want to. And to be forward, for some people in their lives, at whatever point they're in their life, freedom for them is probably a bad thing. And hopefully, and sometimes they know it. That's why people, that's why people get married and have bad relationships and they probably shouldn't have one because they know being on their own is bad. Uh-huh. They make another bad decision anyway. But yeah. sometimes they'll they'll literally people put themselves, people lo- put themselves in the rehab. People yeah. join the military. Join the military. I lost my freedom. I gave up my rights when I joined the military. Yeah. Right? People do it all the time. And sometimes it's the right move. For me at 17, totally the right move. Right. I have no regrets. I surrendered my freedoms for seven years, and it was the right move for me. It was my – I volunteered to do so. The draft is a terrible idea. But a volunteer right. military, good. If, if it's for you, it's for you. All good. Right. That is correct. That is correct. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Philip Fletcher with Larry Sharp, and we are – here in our Humanity Matters one-on-one discussion. And we've been hearing about an amazing start in his life. Um, a lot of great lessons in what you've talked about, Mr. Sharp, regarding discipline and overcoming difficulties and uh, pursuing happiness. Uh, I think it's important to communicate, yeah, that uh, liberty and freedom are means uh, yes. to an end. Um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted you on, I wanted to expose more, uh, this is kind of my heartbeat, uh, more uh, Black Americans, especially here in the South, mm-hmm. to libertarianism. I think yep. uh, in the work that I do with my nonprofit, um, I talk to a lot of people who are entrepreneurial type, who yes. who want to do their own thing and want to be able to do it quickly without a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, obviously, there's, there's individuals who, uh, for med- medical reasons, you know, they want access to particular um, drugs that are not readily available. Uh, and, and I run into a lot of those persons and I, you know, try to talk to them about libertarianism and um, the more faces like me, I can put in front of them, uh, I think can be very helpful 
to expanding that message. That's why I was thankful, like for Ricky Harrington. Yes. And finding someone like yourself. Um, it's kind of like uh, I heard Thomas Sowell say once that him and Walter Williams should never be on the same plane at the same time because if <laughs> the plane went down, it would <laughs> it would be catastrophic. But uh, so you um, saying I can't hang out with Ricky anymore? Yeah, uh. yeah I'm like I'm like, hey, <laughs> like take separate planes and, and things like that uh, because it's it's been refreshing even for myself. Um, you know, listening to your own journey into um politics you know for me i came through the military too i didn't really pay attention to politics um at all until bush ran against Kerry. so that mm-hmm. was bush's second term and that was right before i was deploying to iraq for oif3 you know and quietly i was like man if Kerry wins maybe we want to go to iraq you know um, but yeah. <laughs> yes. that's what I thought, you know, no, yep. you know, Bush won, we went, did what did our job and stuff, but that's when I started to pay attention more to politics. And, yep. um, you know, one of my adages is you may not care about politics, but it cares about you. And so, yeah, yes, this uh, is, you brought this up, you know, a lot of people in our movement get upset and go, well, why do we care about these other people? They just don't get it mm-hmm. because they vote our rights away every year. Yeah, that's why. That's yeah. the reason. Yeah. They vote our rights away every year. That's why we should care. Yeah. One of the things you see me do a lot is I, I do a lot of outreach. Okay. A lot of outreach all the time. I'm about bringing, I, I actually don't talk to that many libertarians compared to non-libertarians. Yeah, I heard most you talk about that in another interview, which yep. I thought was fascinating. Yes. I spend most of my time talking to non-libertarians. Mm-hmm. And in New York City, um, you know, New York is a very blue state. Mm-hmm. So the, the establishment here is all Democrat. Mm-hmm. So I take a lot of my spend a lot of my time talking to Democrats. I, mm-hmm. I literally visit Democrat Socialist uh, of America events. I go right there. Yeah. I've been on. I hang out with the the, the far left YouTubers, right? Yeah, I don't know if you know the YouTubers. Yeah. I go to. I've been on their shows. I've been on Vosh. I've been on Destiny. Yeah. I've been on all. These are people who are far left. They're they're open socialists. Uh-huh. I go on their shows. Ben Burgess, guys. He's 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 talking about he openly is like socialism is the answer that's what he says mm-hmm. i go on their shows i talk to them because i have to convert them yeah i have to get them to see that our way is a better way there are a lot of people in those in in those areas particularly some of the leadership that are really bad people mm-hmm. but the vast majority aren't yeah the vast majority are not really bad people they are average people who believe this is the only way yeah we have to show them it's not the only way. Right. That's correct. And they'll come to us. The leaders won't because they're bad people. Yeah. Well, not all of them, but some of them are. But the average person is not a bad person. They just believe it's the only way. Mm-hmm. What we The problem that we have now is that most of the time when people ask us questions, we focus on philosophy and not on solutions. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I was at our... Uh meeting with some libertarians. And I said, you know, a lot of times it can sound like a, uh, I'm theologically trained. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times when I'm hearing somebody from a libertarian perspective or seeing something on social media, it's almost like someone's giving a sermon. It's, yep. you know, here's this idea, book chapter, Mises, Rothbard, right. copying, you know, run down the list, uh, Bastiat, you know, chapter and verse. But then there's no so what. Mm-hmm. And, and 
you know, my personal work, the people I work with, they're looking for the so what. Yes. They're not really paying attention to the the philosophy and some guy from, you know, that you wear a T-shirt about. They're looking for the so what in their lives. And- I always joke. And when I say, you know, if I'm talking to someone, I don't start with that I'm libertarian at all. I never begin. I never open with that. Mm-hmm. I try to get them to see that I have an answer for their problem. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that they will think I'm whoever they are. Mm-hmm. If they're a Democrat, I'm going to go, oh, you must be a Democrat. If they're a Republican. I want them to go, you must be a Republican. Because they agree with what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Then when I, they find out I'm a libertarian, they go, what? <laughs> I, was, I was trained to not like you guys. What happened? <laughs> so, yes. It becomes a lot different when you have a... Uh personal relationship with with yes. somebody i think too and when you talk about entrepreneurship right yeah and for example i would go into areas where if you go to many areas of depressed they're usually either rural or they're urban right when it comes to depressed areas they tend to be in those two areas more than any place else so you're a rural area they're often farmers so if you start talking to farmers and say hey farmers wouldn't it be better if the government treated you like a small business and you were able to get regular business loans and investors not to put your farm up where you could actually be taxed like a business, not like a farm where, you know, not just that. What if you were treated like a local business? Meaning if you're not selling your products and services outside the state, what if you were able to be immune from all federal regulatory bodies and only worry about state bodies only? And they go, Oh my God, that'd be great. Yeah. You might be able to keep some of your family on your farm. You might not have to have a second job. Imagine if you could grow a craft grow where maybe you can actually have a, a store on your farm or retail it or a wholesale outlet, either one. You can keep seeing your family and friends here, maybe even employ them. Like, oh my God, these are great ideas. They love it. And these right. are people who aren't wealthy. These people just want to have their farm. Yeah. Now go to the urban area. You find a similar situation. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, I've been this all the time. When I was a kid in the Bronx, it's the 70s. There's no Uber, gypsy right. cabs. Cabs wouldn't come to my neighborhood. So we have what's called gypsy cabs. Gypsy cabs okay. means some guy would paint his door a different color than the rest of the car. We knew he was a cab. Okay. Wow. And he would take us around. It's called gypsy cab. If you okay. if you ever look it up in YouTube, whatever, if you ever see any uh, old 70s cop uh, shows, yeah. like Starsky and Hutch and Kojak yeah. that are set in New York City, you'll see gypsy cabs, right? Because that was a thing back in the 70s. Okay. Right? Uh, girls would be on a stoop and they'd be braiding hair for money. Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right, it, that was that was the thing. Now in New York City, that costs you uh, twenty thousand dollars to get a license. Yeah, you want to walk a dog? License? Does it really license to walk license a dog? That. You know, license to walk a dog. You know, you say, yep, yep, license to walk a dog. Yes, yes. You want? And I mean, if you want to be a dog walker professionally, I mean, you can really? walk your own dog, but you want to walk someone else's dog professionally? You're licensed now. It's crazy. All these things are insane. Mm-hmm. So I say, wouldn't it be easier if instead? You could actually begin to start your own work any way you want. Yeah, you got. I know you got a record. I know. So start a business. Nobody cares. Yeah. Right. I know you got a problem. I know you got a broken. Re- I know you got a broken resume because you didn't go to go to go to school and your resume is bad. I know. So because you spent some time hanging out with people you shouldn't hung out with, you was mm-hmm. making money off the books. I know that. Okay. So start a business. How about that? Mm-hmm. But that changes everything, right? right? Work for yourself. How about that? Or I go even crazier. You got a job. You're doing okay, but you're kind of struggling a little bit. How about instead of you living in public housing, how about you have a chance of owning that that apartment? Yeah. How about we do a rent to own? You could own the apartment yourself. You don't care about gentrification if you own the if you own the property. 
Yeah. You don't care. In fact, you control gentrification. Right. You cannot sell. Right. Or you could sell or you could rent it. Do whatever you want. Now mm-hmm. it's on you. Yeah. So I talk about these types of things. And these are things that these are actual answers. And I don't just go, I'm going to make sure that we support and give people what they need, which is what everyone says. Right. I say, how about we set an environment up where you can freely go off and do what you got to do? And you see people, they respond to that. Yes. And now we're talking. And again, if I'm in a rural area that usually is a Republican, they assume I'm Republican. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a more rural, a, a more a urban area, which is usually more Democrat, they assume I'm a Democrat when I say these things. Yeah. And then I show them, oh, no, I'm libertarian. This is all about freedom, which is the ability for you to go get where you want to go. And that's my point. It's a means to an end. Mm-hmm. The difference between being an activist and being a candidate. An activist in our movement, their job is to get people to care about stuff. And often they're bombastic or they do stunts or whatever. Whatever. I don't care. You're an activist. Do what you got to do. Do what you got to do to get your audience to care about our issues. I'm in. Do it. If you're a candidate, you have to have answers. Yeah. You got to have answers. It can't just be this is important or the wars are bad or whatever. That's nice. But now you have to have a way of doing it. Yeah. What's the way? What's the policy? What's the issue? Yeah. What's the answer? And I think yeah. that's that's the critical piece to changing from being an activist to a candidate and putting yeah. that hat on, right? And then taking a hat back off, being an activist again, and then putting your hat, candidate hat back on and being a candidate. Yeah, I've observed there's this kind of ongoing discussion about uh, the direction of uh, the LP as an organization mm-hmm. um, and the movement about this whole activist candidate what should be the priority um, in its work. I, I kind of see it as they need to work in tandem. Uh, I agree with you. You're right. Yeah. I don't, not every activist should be a politician. Like there's just some individuals who, who are excellent at, you know, getting a group together, you know, motivating them, you know, to get the word out, do outreach, that kind of stuff um kind of do some culture shaping type things but then you got to have those individuals who um who kind of fit a who kind of fit a I'm using this loosely kind of fit a mold if you will in what America expects of a politician i think that's the other yeah. thing america as a culture it does have a picture of what a politician would look like and sound like here's the issue you have to find this 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 very hard part to find which i don't always find that either i always search for it Uh and that is being radical enough to be noticed and to people to care about but familiar enough to be heard Mm -hmm. now what people have done it well in the past ron paul did it very well doesn't he ron paul was good at that right he was able to be radical enough but familiar enough for people to go, what? Oh, sometimes we are too much. We either become so familiar that no one pays attention to us, right? We're not radical at all and no one pays attention or so radical no one can hear us. So we've got to find that middle. As a candidate, you want to find that middle ground. And that depends upon your audience and where you are. And the the example I'll give is when I was talking about legalizing cannabis in New York State, Uh I used a phrase called, Regulate like onions. Regulate is a familiar term. Onions is odd. I want 
cannabis like onions, but I'm regulating. So I tried to make that happen. The concept was don't treat cannabis like a, a, a drug, treat like a plant, right? Allow farmers to grow it and make craft grows. Um, my, my, old, my old joke was if you like your dealer, you keep your dealer, right? All he really has to do is go down, you know, to the, to the government and, and get an LLC on S Corp and they're legal and they're dealing on the street. They want to, I don't care where everything I deal. It's fine. They, they can still do their, their business. But now if someone steals their weed, they don't have to pull out a baseball bat or a pistol. They can call the cops. Yeah. Right. Someone doesn't deliver uh, their product. They can go to court. Right. They, they don't they don't now have to resort to violence anymore. Right? right. You just do that. And that kind of thing was an idea that people like that's stuck. Like people still talk about that now. Regulate mm-hmm. like onions. Right. And I picked onions. This is an interesting story only because I happened to be in Western New York when we were talking about that. And we grow onions in Western New York. Okay. So that's why I picked onions. But I don't care. Carrots, peas, you pick it. Lettuce. I don't care. You yeah. decide. But, but but that concept is what I mean. That wasn't perfect. That was one of my better shots at it. I tried often, but I often failed. I either was too boring or I was too radical. Mm. You got to find that mix of being, you know, radical enough so people go, uh-huh, but then familiar enough to where they go, okay, I can hear you. Yeah. And, you know, we get there sometimes. Sometimes we don't. But I think we still keep trying for that that sweet spot to the best of our ability. Yeah, that's good. That's real good. Um, so reparations. Okay. So that's how I was in Clubhouse a couple of months ago. Um, and I'm I am I am not for or against reparations, uh, just being transparent. Um, I'm still studying the issue and trying to hear and different sides, but I was in the clubhouse and somebody had mentioned your name. And it was like, you should go check out Larry Sharp. Uh, because he's talked, he's a libertarian, he's talked about rep- reparations. And then my mind went like this, right? Because I was like a libertarian who's wrote a plan for reparations, right? And I was like, what? So that's my first introduction to you. I went to your website and and looked it up, and I was like, okay, I could I could see that. And uh, it was a blog post, um, zero cost reparations plan in February that was written. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, because it was. Really- <laughs> this is my point about having uh, about having policies right mm-hmm. there many libertarians will simply say get government out of it mm-hmm. and in theory that's true I, I'm not against that concept at all I love that idea I wouldn't be libertarian if I didn't think that yeah the reality of it is you have a, a huge chunk of Americans who would be a hundred percent against getting government out of many things so yeah. I've got to accept that as true and then how do I find a policy that either stops government growth option one option two, pushes it back a bit or option three just turns it in the right direction. Right. I mean, I'm, I need to get in the right direction. We're going towards more and more and more government, more and more control. So I'm just going to turn in the right direction at least. And then maybe others can push it further than I can push it. Right. But I think I can turn it around at least it's going in the wrong direction. Uh-huh. So some things aren't stopping. They were actually, one of the reasons why I came up with the plan is they were actually talking about it in Congress. Yes. And all people were like, no, bad, evil. And what was happening is no one had an actual answer. Mm-hmm. And I actually had people say silly things like, well, why don't you give the slave owners reparations? Mm-hmm. And I said, they got it. That actually happened. Yeah. They literally got it. Right. And blow people's minds. They can't believe it. Like, yeah, Andrew Johnson, the pre- president got impeached, first impeached. He yeah. gave it to him. They actually did get it. 
that yeah. that happened. Like everybody reparations except us. Like everybody did, mm-hmm. right? Um, us and the Haitians. Haitians got no reparations also. So no Haitians and no us. We right. we didn't get everyone else did, right? So um, in fact, the French got reparations from the Haitians when the Haitians revolted and became independent. True story. Haitians are always re- the raw end of the stick. I tell you, one of the reasons why there are many reasons why Haiti's in a bad spot. Yeah. One yeah. of those reasons is they they've been paying reparations to the French for like hundred years. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons. So there's there's many reasons why. But anyway, my, my my point here being, I thought we have to find an answer for this, right? How do we find an answer? And people say, well, Larry's write a check, and I say, I don't want to write a check. It's a bad idea for many reasons. Mm-hmm. One, if we just write a check, you're gonna have a whole bunch of people who are angry. Yes, that's number one. But yeah. angry, you, you're gonna have a lot of angry people. Second, you you have a big problem. You know, the 40 acres and a mule idea was a wonderful idea. And if just Abraham Lincoln wasn't shot, we would have done that. For those people who don't know, the concept was this. This was a con. It, there was no actual policy yet. It was a concept, mm-hmm. and the concept was that all the the plantation owners who owned the slaves, the government would confiscate all their land. Chop it up into acres. The assumption was 40 acres, but that wasn't 100% rule. And they'd be given back to the slaves. Makes sense. The, 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 the people who gained from the slaves were the slave owners. This was the land the slaves had worked. Give it to them. And on top of that, the army from the Civil War had hundreds of thousands of mules they were using to pull everything. There's no cars back then. They used mules to pull everything. Pull so we didn't do all these mules at the end of the war. We don't need them anymore. Give them to the slaves. They can use them to pull their, you know, to pull their carts on the farms. Brilliant idea. The people, you you get rid of all the, the mules, right? The government has to pay for, wonderful. And the people who pay are the people who did the bad deed. Mm-hmm. The poor whites who don't have slaves, they don't pay. Only the people are the slaves. What a wonderful idea. I yeah. wish that had happened. That's reparations. Yeah. What actually happened? Slaves heard that and they went back on their land and started divvying up land and they started farming. They thought, okay, we're free now. Let's start farming. Andrew Johnson said, oh, no, sent the military in and physically removed them, put them back on slave change, put them in jail. It was a horrible thing. It didn't work. So now we have a problem. Now it's 150 years, 20 years later. How in the world do you justify writing a check from a government when at best, at best, maybe 3%, 4% at best of Americans today are descendants of slave owners? Mm -hmm. Maybe. That's probably a high number, right? So. And and the vast majority of Americans who are now are descendants of people who weren't even in the weren't country exactly during slavery. They weren't even in the country, mm-hmm. right? They they weren't in the country then. So how do you do that? It, wow, it sounds horrible. However, you have to realize the biggest issues that we have from slavery actually isn't slavery. And there's a piece that people don't understand. Slavery wasn't the worst thing that happened. For Americans, for Black Americans today, that was terrible. But the worst thing was the government sponsored apartheid and racism from slavery. Yeah, that's actually worse for us today than the slavery. Mm-hmm. If at the end of slavery we had done one of three things, either what they some up, send the slaves back to Africa, or whatever, either that, right. or or given slaves a, a homeland like you know whatever Kansas is now an African reservation or whatever, or something like that, right? Or just the right thing, which is just let black people integrate as they would have normally integrated. Right. That would have been nice. I like that one. We should have done that. What would have happened is black people would have integrated because people aren't naturally racist. 
people are naturally tribal. Say that again. Not, Say that again, Larry, please. People are not naturally racist. Yeah. They are naturally tribal. Mm-hmm. And tribe does not have to do with race. It can, but it's not required. Right. We make tribes on who likes DC or Marvel. Yeah. We make tribes on baseball teams. We make mm-hmm. tribes on what part of the country you come from. Yeah. We're very tribal, but tribes don't have to war and fight. Mm-hmm. Tribes can unite. Right. Tribes marry. They intermarry to make bigger tribes. Mm-hmm. We are naturally tribal. How do we know that? If we were naturally racist, there would have been no need for segregation laws in the South. Right. People would have just done it because we're naturally racist. Yeah. No, government had to make that a thing. Government is the only thing that actually creates and codifies racism. Mm-hmm. It is always without without government, racism is just stupid. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. With government, it's deadly. Yes. Right? Government is what makes racism horrible. Yes. Without it, we don't we aren't nasty racist. It's not how it works. How do I know that? Look at the south now. Yeah. More integrated than the north. Yeah. More integrated to the north. I know I've been to the south and the north. I've crossed this country. It's yeah, more integrated to the right. south than it is in the north. You're right. So it, we're not naturally racist. We're naturally tribal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, government comes in. And by the way, most people don't know this. The reason why black people became chattel slavery, chattel slaves, why black became different, was in that early 1600s when, there were, when, when, when people were coming over, black people and white people weren't different when they first came over. I mean, physically, obviously, but they weren't different politically at all. They were all just poor people coming over, most of them as indentured servants. Irish came over as indentured servants. Italians came over as indentured servants. Well, they rebelled because they got together because their tribe was class at that point. We're all the poor servants. Let's go kill the rich people. Rich people said, whoa, this, this ain't going to work. We can't do this. We got to break these guys up so I have them fight each other. What's the easiest way? Race. Yes. Because it was easy. Yeah. They're dark. They're light. Yeah. That was the first time ever that we said, you're a, you're a slave because you're black. Yeah. And if you're white, you're an indentured servant. Mm-hmm. See, it's different now. Mm-hmm. So I know you're, 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 you're lots bad, white person, but black person worse. Mm-hmm. Only government does stuff like that. People yeah. don't do that. That's mm-hmm. government. And that's been done throughout the world. That was literally done in, in South Africa. Right. That was in North Africa. That's not all over the place. Divvy people up on something obvious, right? Oh, yeah. skin color. Divvy them on that. And now they're different because we say they're different. Yeah. That then becomes codified in law and in culture. And that's how you breed racism. Government breeds racism, right? That's what happens. So you break that up. That was harder for us than slavery. Because now it meant, now you're not a slave. Oh, you're still a second-class citizen. Yeah. That was the issue. If you look at any other culture that had slaves, and many of them had slaves. Right. The children of the slaves were not slaves. Mm-hmm. You were a slave because something happened. You made the king angry. Your yeah. tribe lost the war. Right. And you were captured and you were enslaved. But your children, they didn't lose the war. They didn't make the uh, the, the king unhappy. They were free. There's yeah. literally thousands of stories of children buying their parents' freedom. That's a thing throughout the entire world, except America. Mm-hmm. Because America, that's why it's called chattel slavery. Mm-hmm. You are a slave because you are black. Yeah. Not because you lost the war or made the king angry or whatever is the, the punishment of that, right? This is why once we freed slaves, if you are a criminal, you can still be a slave. Mm-hmm. Make the king angry, you can still be a slave. Yeah. That's never changed throughout the entire country. The world's always been that way. Right. I'm sorry, I digress. 
But as we move forward, no, now that was, that was great background in, in yeah. Now the government then decides to create rules that separates again. After World War One, black pe- men come back from World War One thinking we fought this war with you, mm-hmm. we died with you, we're citizens, and we create so many of these Black Wall Streets, all those things, right? Why, if you look, if you look at Black Wall Street as a perfect example, I'm talking about Black Wall Street. Look at yeah. the pictures. Where are the black men? Who are the black men being led led away with from? I'm by. I'm sorry. Soldiers. Mm-hmm. The government came in, took away the black men who were veterans, took their guns, gun control, took them away, then burned the town because they couldn't go burn the town when a bunch of black veterans with weapons were there. Right. right. It wouldn't have happened. They'd been a bunch of dead white people. Right. That wouldn't have worked. So the government had to come in. The government gave them weapons. The government is the reason why Black Wall Street was destroyed. And so many of them all government sponsored. So now we got a problem. Now we, we, we go on our own and build up our own and the government destroys it. Now after World War II, again, we fight that war. Again, we come back home. Yeah. You say, we're going to be free now, right? We fought that war, right? We good? And the government goes, well, yeah, we're going to help all the veterans out. We're going to do all this... Uh, all this house building, all these mortgages. Yeah. Oh, except black people. No. Yeah. And it was the federal government. And this is the thing people get. People say, Larry, you're saying that, you know, Americans are racist. No, no. Do I think the average mortgage broker or home retailer is any more racist than anybody else? I don't at all. They're just human beings. Mm-hmm. But when the government tells this person, you may not get a mortgage if right. it's in this area, if the family's black. Yeah, they're just doing what makes sense. They're following the system. Right. They don't care if the people are black. Well, I right. can't get you a mortgage. I guess you don't get a house. Sorry. That's what happened. And yeah. that happened. Literally, there were government rules that said there was a certain percent. I think it was 30 percent. 30 percent of any neighborhood could be Jewish because they thought Jew- Jews were less than white people in, in their mind. Mm-hmm. Irish and Italians. They thought those groups of people were they, those were the lower class whites in their eyes. Right. Yeah. Though 30 percent of neighborhood could be that. Zero percent could be black. Zero. That's the origin of redlining. Right. So now you come to the next space, which is, well, we're going to get rid of redlining, but then we have mortgage problems. Same issue. No blacks. Mm-hmm. Can't do it. Well, now you come that people say, well, in the 70s, they changed those rules. It did actually change the culture to the 80s. And then go, well, see, it's the 80s. They should be able to do it. What, what, what's wrong with you? You think these mortgage brokers and bankers are racist? No, not at all. I don't mm-hmm. think that either. They were going to the rules of right. having to credit. Right. But remember, since 1940 to 1980, black people couldn't have credit. Yeah. Legally, they yeah. couldn't have it. So of course, by the 80s, most black people don't have any credit. Yeah. So they can't get good mortgages and good loans. Yeah. Not because the the mortgage brokers are racist, they're not, cuz the system was set up so that was how it worked. Right. So the biggest issue of all my stories I'm telling you, all these things, government housing, all these things. Yeah. It is put into most black most poor black communities, most poor black communities, a mindset that is not of ownership, a yeah. mindset that is of rental. All I have to do is every month make my bills and survive. Survivability, next step, survivability, next month, month to month thought process. Mm-hmm. If we're going to right the wrongs of the American government without punishing people with nothing to do with it, yeah, the only way to do that is to rebuild an ownership mindset in the black community. Yes. That's it. That's the answer. Mm-hmm. Rebuild an ownership mindset. Killer Mike did a, uh, um, a show on like Netflix. Yeah, I saw that. To, you yeah. saw that. He was trying to, yeah. he tried to have a, an Atlanta, a very yeah. black city. Yeah. 
He tried to, to survive in only black-owned businesses. Couldn't do it. It was impossible. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it. Impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so many white people go, why do black people burn down stores in their own community? They're not owned by black people is why. No, they're, they're not owned by black people. No, they're not. They're owned by Asians. Asians. Yeah. They're not owned by black people. I'm not being racist. I'm being factual. No, you're right. It's, and now it's it's either Asians or um, Middle Easterners. Middle Easterners and some Indians. Arabs. Yeah. Indians. Yep. Yeah. They're not yeah. owned by black people. Yes. Yeah. That's that, that. People don't get that because they live in those neighborhoods. Right. Right. Live in a neighborhood, you know. Go mm-hmm. in there, but you know. That's how it actually is. So my point is a several-step process to make that happen that I think is fair. Okay. First off, it has to be over a certain amount of time. It must be timed in some way. I thought the idea of a generation is about 23 years, give or take. So I thought 23 years or 46 years, depending upon how you put it together. But it's timed. Okay. For the sake of argument, 23 years. Sake of argument. But again, I'm open to change that time period. For 23 years, any time an African descendant of slaves, you do that by a similar way that we do it now already, find the same rules defined in America for Native Americans. There are federal guidelines for Native Americans that decide who is Native American. We do the same thing for African descendants of slaves. If you are an African descendant of slaves, anytime you want to transfer wealth between you and another family member, there's another person who is an African descendant of slaves, by blood, same thing, that person, it is free, regardless of any taxation that may be due in any local or federal or anything. This, this must be done as a constitutional amendment to overdo everything. It doesn't matter what your rules and regulations are. If you want to transfer wealth between two African descendants of slaves, it is free, period, from everything for 23 years. That's how we got to get in the mindset of transferring wealth. That is in the end, obviously, the first part. Second part. Oh, Larry, let me yes, ask you So the big yes. push, like, would it also be exempt, like, from a what's called the death tax as well? Correct. Uh, Everything. Okay. Everything. Okay. Everything. Okay. Because we have not been able to transfer wealth okay. for generations. So now we're going to start we transfer wealth for free. I don't care what your – you can make any law you want. Mm-hmm. This must be an amendment which – no, zero. For 23 years, if you transfer wealth, African descendant of slaves to the African descendant of slaves, yeah. zero. Doesn't matter. Suck okay. it up. Sorry. Nothing. Next step. If you are an African descendant of slaves and you have ownership in property, any property of ownership in, your, your, in, your own home, investment property, mm-hmm. commercial real estate, it, whatever taxes that your local governments put on that, any property taxes, half. If 51% ownership or more, 51% ownership or more. Why? Because most of the people who are buying things right now are not, are not, are not black. It's a fact. Just aren't. Now, all of a sudden I'm going to buy a building. It's a lot of tax on that. Yeah. How do I get around that? Where are my black friends? I am now encouraging integration without forcing integration. Yeah. I'm encouraging it because now I'm going to buy a building. I'm going to pay $4 million a year in taxes. Huh. I call up Phil and Larry. Yeah. Give them 25.5% each of this. Mm-hmm. My tax bill just went out $2 million. Yeah. All right, then. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you do. Yeah. Right? So yeah. now I'm encouraging to bring us in. Yeah. I'm encouraging us to be in that world. Yeah. I'm encouraging us to come in to do that. 
Now, if you don't want to, if you already own your building and whatever, you don't care, you don't have to. Right. You play your game. It's fine. Whatever you want. Do that. Yeah. But half. It will encourage people to start doing that. Yeah. It will also encourage, it will encourage people to start, it will encourage people who are buying things, start chasing the black families and saying, why aren't you buying with me? Mm. And the reason why it's 23 years and 51% ownership is I can't now get you in, sucker you in, and then buy you out. Because if yeah. I buy you out, I, my tax go back up. Right. I got to keep the ownership for this 23-year period. 23-year period. Right? So I got to keep it. So I can't just, let me get Phil in real fast, and I'll buy him out, get him out of yeah. here. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. You got to be part of this. Yeah. You got to learn how this works. Yeah. And now Phil starts learning how this ownership thing works, yeah. understanding it. Phil brings his kids and family into it. They start getting it. Yeah. Now he wants to transfer wealth. It's free. It's free. Yeah. That's good. So now you start thinking about ownership. It gets it into your head. Mm-hmm. Ownership, ownership, ownership. I'm still not done. Any business you own, same thing. 51%, half. 51%, half. You're paying half your business tax. Mm-hmm. 51% ownership. I'm encouraging this to happen, to go together. I'm mm-hmm. encouraging us to transfer wealth. It's 23 years, mm-hmm. right? So now we're going to find integration naturally without forcing it. I know the answer is, but Larry, now there's going to be less taxation. So now people can be paying more in taxes. No, not at all. Because what's this going to spur? Merge and acquisition like there's no tomorrow. Which means spurs commerce. Yeah. How do I know that? Because when the government's done this in the past for things like, well, we'll give you special this or that if it's a minority-owned business, yeah. what yeah. did it spur? It spurred, it spurred integration. Yeah. It actually, we've seen this happen already. Yeah. It spurred merge and acquisition. It would do this again. So it'll spur more and more and more. More people mixing together. More people doing stuff. More e-commerce. It will generate more commerce to easily make up for whatever small percentage of, of property tax that will go away. Mm-hmm. Right? It'll easily make up for that without question. Next. This one affects everybody, right? But more black people than anybody else, but everybody. Every single possession drug drug charge needs to be not just a pardon, but expunged. Mm -hmm. Every drug possession charge, gone. Everyone gone. It should be gone and it should be against the law to discriminate somebody who ever, if you ever found out or knew they had a possession charge. Now, that's going to help white people, too. And I'm okay with that. I think everyone should be helped for that. Yeah. In fact, this also helps white people, by the way. Right? Exactly. The other two also helps white people. Yeah. Because it gets more integration. It gets more commerce. It spurs more. So everyone's helped by this. But yeah. clearly, the majority of people helped are, are black descendants of slaves. Yeah. Clearly, they, they, the majority. But everyone's helped with this, this issue. And I said, Larry, what about grandma who's, you know, 80 years old and she can't do this? Well, then maybe her son or grandson, she's like giving us some stuff. He can transfer it to her for free. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not for him. It's not helping out. I can't help the, the people. Who, my father's dead. He can't right. help from this. Right. So he's already screwed. That's how it worked. Right. He's already done. Done. Um, my father dated a white woman once and a guy hit him over the head. This is in New York again. Okay. With one of those old school can openers. Opened yeah. up his skull. Opened up his skull. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's my father went through. Right. So that's that's done. I can't I can't go back and fix that. Exactly. I, it's done. But can I fix now that I can Can I make it better now? Yeah. But here's the best part about it. After 23 years, that's coming up and this is now going to go away. Who's going to want to pay full taxes? Nobody, nobody on, on any side, because I think I like the 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 building example going to buy. Yep. Right. So 
any non-black person, they're going to look at us and be like, hey, that's a benefit to us to move from 4 million to 2 million, then we split it however many ways, right? Right. Um, and I want to continue that on in perpetuity, or can we get that even lesser? Uh, so what's going to wind up happening is yeah. all taxes will come down. down. That's yeah. just how it works. Right. And when all of America gets a tax break, what do Americans say? Thanks, black people. I yeah. would like them saying that to us. I would like that. Yeah. I would like Americans to be, thanks, black people. You gave us all a tax break. This reparations thing was great. I'm glad you did that. That's but, awesome. Yeah. And I think the, and there's so many uh, positive consequences that can come from this because yes. I think, you know, the number of, uh, you know, typically black people are the face of poverty. Um, yes. But, in terms I'd of like them to be the face of commercial real estate. That'd exactly. be nice. It moves from that <laughs> nice. to these, you know, business owners, property owners, more bank owners, you know, whatever the individual wants to do. Yeah. Uh, but then also the, all of these entitlement programs will also have to come go away as well. Cause there'll be no need for them. Yes. These individuals are now taking care of themselves. I was yep. taking care of their families Yep. Uh, kids, children are educated in, you know, business and things like that. And, you know, these things that my social justice brothers and sisters keep railing about. Yep. Now there's an opportunity for that to actually happen in real time. But then also you're going to have to walk across the street and partner with somebody who does not look like you. Yes. In order to because your black may, neighbor may not have that access, but that white guy do. Or that, you know, like, hey, can we go into business together? And you at least know for 23 years, we're stuck together. Yes, right. Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So I I think that that's a piece. And people always say, well, Larry, then why wouldn't you want to just give black people a check? Everyone else got a check. I -hmm. agree. That makes everyone else did get a check. That's true. Mm -hmm. Here's the reason why. I look at the lottery. Look at lottery winners. Lottery winners. After five years, over 50% of lottery winners are worse off than they were. About Mm -hmm. a third go bankrupt. Yeah. Why in the world would I want to do this to my people? Right. Why would I want to do this to my people? So I'm going to let a third maybe do well and two thirds be devastated? Is that what I'm going to do? No, thank you. But the other thing is, well, then Larry, don't give them in one spot, you know, give them monthly checks, right? So don't give them one big check. Give them monthly checks over the, your 23 years. Give them checks for 23 years. Oh, okay, got it. You know what happens already? When that happens already, you see it with settlements right now. Mm-hmm. Bankers come in and they buy the settlements for, 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 for lump sums. Yeah. You want your money now? I'll give you your money now. Right. Don't wait 23 years for your money, my man. Don't do that. I'm going to give, look, the government owes you $100,000. I'll give you 50 grand right now for all your 23 years. Yeah. Oh, I'll do that. Boom. That's happening now. Yeah. In which is I have the same lottery situation. So if I just give money without changing mindset, I haven't I haven't helped my people. You're right. And I think right, I got to change the mindset to help my people. You're right. I think I got to change the system to help my people. Yeah. I got to get the average white Asian Indian Hispanic person who's saying I'm going to go buy something to think, do I have a black friend? Mm-hmm. I want them thinking that. And I can't force it. But can I create an environment where they might think that way? That'd be amazing. Right. And the other thing is this, is I think COVID and the 
different stimulus, you know, solutions that, you know, the federal government has come up with, those things, again, are short term. And what what I've seen is uh, a lot of the families I work with, they're getting, I think it was up to two, three hundred dollars per child per month type thing. It's not moving the needle with those families at all. It's not. That's the problem, right? Giving it's the not, money yeah. does does a short look. The government does four things well. Four things really well. I'm listening. Four things does really well. <laughs> and that's why it always falls back to these one of these four things or a combination. Because yeah. it's good at four things. Number one, killing people. Really good at that. Facts. You want a millions of people killed, particularly Facts. indiscriminately. Government is that's the way to go. We got you covered. We will kill millions of them. No problem. Hopefully indiscriminately. Hope you don't care if it's movement children. We'll kill all of them. We are good at that. Yeah. Number two, imprisoning people. Very good at that. You want people in prison? We got you. We'll make camps. We'll build prisons on Guantanamo Bay. We'll put them in your neighborhood. We we can we'll arrest them for no reason. Got you. We got government because been doing that for hundreds of years. We will take care of you on that. Got that covered. Three creating bureaucracies that will slow things down, right? Checking boxes for nothing. Awesome. So good at that. You're too efficient. We will shut that right down. We'll make sure nothing gets done. We will freeze everything to a point where only two types of people will ever succeed. The black market and the wealthy. That's it. We will always set up a system that will slow everybody down, except the black market and the wealthy. Government is great at that. Last thing they're good at, writing checks. Oh my God, do they write checks well. They write checks better than banks. Mm-hmm. Great at getting checks out to people. Man, they're good at that. They can write checks. There's no tomorrow. Those are the four things government does well. And if you notice, every, every time it's a problem, one of those four or a combination is the answer to everything. Literally, yeah. there is not one problem that has ever come up that government will not do one of those four things. Note all of my policies. None of them have any of those four. Yeah, I'm the guy who does not do those four. Because those are all four terrible things that government does well. Yeah, yeah. So now, there's a problem. There's a problem. There's a problem. Write them a check. There's a problem. Bomb them. There's a problem. Write them a law. Put them in jail. There's a problem. Make regulations. Yeah. Done. Those are the four. That's good. Yeah, I, I have to say, uh, telling everybody who'll be watching this or listening to this in the show notes, I'm gonna put uh, Mr. Sharp's uh, link to his policy page. Uh, I think what has uh, really been helpful is that. Uh, you have moved from the philosophical and the theoretical to the actual here is step A, B, C, one, two, three. Um, And that's been uh, very refreshing uh, for myself personally, but I think it can help people understand. um, And and, and a lot of your policies are shaped towards you being in New York, but I still think it is a, great framework and model for others to uh, present, especially those who are seeking to run for office, um, who can try to thread that needle between the activists and the the politician type. But the opportunity to be able to lay out like what you've done regarding uh, reparations, I think is a great um, presentation that I think can win people over. that can well, I think you're right. When, when I talk to people about it, people on the right who tend to hate reparations, yeah, and I mean hate it, yeah. Most of them, when they hear this, they go, "All right," like they can, they can just, mm, okay, it don't taste yeah. good, but 
I'll swallow it fine. Yeah. Like they're like okay with it, right? Yeah. Other forms, they are against. And I mean, like this one, they're like, okay, I'll take it. Mm-hmm. But I want to bring up something else. All my yeah. policies have four rules. Four rules. One, never any new taxes or fees or fines. Never. That's number one. Number two, never any force. Never any force in anything I do. Always voluntary. Number three, whenever it affects people, try. This is a, this is a try. So the rule is an, an attempt. Always try to be assisting the middle class and the working poor more than anybody else. Those people should be getting the, the best of the bits. Mm-hmm. Why that? Because the middle class and the working poor are those who actually help out the poor the most. Those are the ones who are in a soup kitchen. Those are the ones who are in the churches. Those are the ones who are actually helping out the very poor. If you just help the very poor, you just help the very poor. But if you help the middle class and the working poor, they will assist the very poor on their own. It's what they do. Yeah. And the wealthy are fine. I don't care about them. They're wor- they'll be fine. They're wealthy. They're good. And then last, if I'm dealing with anything with business, you always support the entrepreneur class over the corporate class. Because the entrepreneur class, those are the people who grow the most. They help the most. They're the ones who can take down the, the corporate Goliaths better than government can. So you always want to support the entrepreneur class over the corporate class. You follow those for rules in any policy you make, you're, ten, you're usually going to have better policy. But I want to cover two more things if I could. Mm-hmm. You talked about the, uh, for people to look at things. If you want to go to my YouTube page, the Sharp Way YouTube page, search for my Juneteenth special from 2020. It's about an hour and a half long. And I cover the race issues literally from 1620 till today. And reparations, how it worked. It's about an hour. It's very good. It shows details. <clears throat> Excuse me. It shows how government is the reason why there's racism. It's, it shows everything. It's a good, about an hour and a half. Se- uh, last thing. If you really want to see something interesting, I went and I did a video last year. I went to Bernie Sanders' webpage and looked at his policies. And I walked down his entire policy page and gave a libertarian answer for every single one of his policies. It's about six hours long total. It's four videos. And if you if you care, you, it's, a, it's a playlist on the Sharpway YouTube page. And it says, uh, if I remember right, can't feel the burn. Maybe it's not sharp enough. <laughs> and it's four pages, four videos going down his, his page going, here's how you get what you want. Again, here's how you get the outcome you want without government force. Mm-hmm. You can get the outcome without government force. Because the problem with most people don't understand is, Force is a very good short-term answer. Short-term, it works, right? It's the long-term damage you don't see, right? So I need money. Pull my gun out and I rob you. I got money. Short-term, that worked. I now have money. Long-term, we got some problems. Yeah. Right? But short-term, that worked. That's how all government force works. Short-term is great. Long-term is a disaster. That's awesome. Mr. Sharp, in the last few minutes, what's the future hold for you? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not really sure. I'm still yeah. trying to make the world a better place, doing my best. I'm looking at running for governor of New York next year. Okay. Um, I'm exploring it now. And if I get a lot of support, then I probably will do it. If I don't, then I may not, but I need a lot of support. It's very challenging to run for governor. I take a year off of my life again, no yeah. salary. You know, running for office in a statewide, particularly, but in almost any way, is either an establishment man's game or rich man's game. Sometimes a woman, but still usually often a man. But it's a game for those who are independently wealthy. I am not. Or who are establishment, getting checks from the government. I'm not. When I ran for government in 2018, there were five people running. Four of them were getting government checks. I wasn't. 
I was the only one not getting paid. Taxpayers were paying them all to run. Yeah. I was just, I just went a year and a half without a salary. So I have to do it again this year, this year if I run again. So if I get enough support, I'll do it. If not, we'll see. But okay. that's my hope. And you have a forthcoming book. I do. Happiness. The book is called On Happiness. Those On of happiness. you who, who want to see my political life, LarrySharp.com slash policy if you want some policy or slash donate if you want to you know encourage me to run you can if you like please all support is is good if you just want to see what i'm doing uh, on my my um my podcast the sharp way go to sharpway.com slash book and you'll see the book there or the show youtube page instagram i'm on all those things twitter all facebook everything good deal mr sharp it's been refreshing i appreciate you very much for joining us for humanity matters one-on-one Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Thank you once again for joining us for Humanity Matters one-on-one. As always, you can find us on social media at Philip Fletcher, Dr. Philip Fletcher, the Facebook page. Subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. And as well on our website, sign up for our newsletter, philipfletcher.org. Coming up in October, we will have uh, Angela McCardle for... Uh, Humanity Matters 101. So we'll be looking forward to that. That'll be October 23rd. And that will be uh, made live on YouTube as well as on our podcast, uh, anchor.fm. And in fact, this interview with Larry Sharp will be available on the podcast as well and wherever you get your podcast content. So as always, remember to be loved, to be kind, and to be generous and to be courageous. And if we remember to live in hope, we can do the impossible. Take care. God bless. Hey, if you found something of value, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Find us on Facebook at Dr. Philip Fletcher. Find us on Twitter at Philip Fletcher. And as always, visit us on the website, philipfletcher.org.